Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 164 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, April 22nd. It's 2020. I don't know what's happening anymore, but I do know I'm Bobby Chesney. Who are you? I'm pretty sure I'm Steve Vladek, but beyond that, I mean, I just finished teaching my federal court students about retroactivity and habeas after Teague versus Lane. Um, so if I start talking about, you know, new rules and um, watershed rules of criminal procedure, um, you know, talk me down. <laughs> liberate federal courts, Steve. Liberate, 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 liberate my federal court students, more like it. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, I have to say, I mean, I know, I know there are all of these liberate, you know, blank memes out there. This is so fracking. I mean, you know, I, I, I do not mean to indulge these memes by perpetuating them. This is just so dumb. You're such a meme indulger. Oh, that really could be not. Share title. This podcast indulges memes. I have to say, no, I does have, not indulge them. I have, I am, I am starting to to take up your 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 rules of Twitter. I am, I am feeding trolls less. I am instinctively blocking more and more of the people. Oh, um, someone tried to impersonate me on Twitter the other day. Someone created a clone <laughs> account. Um, I swear it wasn't me. <laughs> um, no, but 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 you're gonna love it. It was at Steve Vladek without the underscore. Well, you know, it's it's kind of a layup. I, you probably should have uh, squatted on that before. So, you know, I, I, I deserve what I got. But um, I will curious, say... A Twitter yeah. history for you. Did you have some moment where you pondered, do I want the underscore? Do I not want the underscore? So, was it you know, a conscious choice? It was a conscious choice when I created it back in 2011 because I typed out Steve Vladek without the underscore. And like, if you look at it too quickly, it's not actually necessarily like, you know, your brain's not used to seeing EVE like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Right. right. And so I thought the underscore, like, you know, the underscore would be clear whose account this was. But of course, this has led to nothing but grief and now cloning. Although I will say, Bobby, to Twitter's credit, um, they reacted uh, very, very quickly to my, um, uh, my support request. Was your doppelganger or your would-be uh, uh, fraudster able to fire off any very un-Steve Vladek comments or notes before he, so, so he or she was taken down? So there was nothing nefarious to that point. Like all the account had been doing since its creation was retweeting all of my tweets, which, hey, I'll take the bump. Um, but the, you know, <laughs> but, but my, my concern was that, you know, that was to build up some minimum degree of credibility so that when it actually wanted to pretend to be me and say something actually nefarious. When you came out, Vladek for Trump 2020, uh, it might... Uh... I mean, you know, that would be pretty <laughs> no, the, nefarious. There, you know, I, obviously, correct move to get that taken down right away. Um, and yet, it is, there's, I'm dying to know like, what sort of misdeed would eventually have happened there. But I'm glad you noticed. I'm really not dying to know. You know what? I'm going to go, I'm gonna go create at Bobby underscore Chesney, and we'll figure Don't out you know, where this will, goes. Because I'll report you as the one who did it. Um, how did I find out? So um, uh, one of our listeners actually um, DM'd me to point out that uh, he had spotted the, the fake account. I don't know how he spotted it, but I was, I was grateful awesome. for the for the tip. And one other funny little note, it was a perfect carbon copy of my profile, except that um, for Roxy's account, there was a, there was a misspelling um, of Roxy's name. So instead of at Roxanne or the pug, it was at Roxanne or the plug. Um, <laughs> by the way, it's not a real Twitter account. I checked. Oh my God. That's so great. Well, um, that is entertaining to imagine someone went to this trouble. I Seriously? guess. Uh, well, so, so this is what, got fans. So this is what I, what, what I, you know, of course tweeted, cause that's very meta. Um, last night is on the one hand, like, wow, I'm kind of flattered that someone actually went through the trouble of trying to impersonate me. On the other hand, it's like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> really? 
just it's just chewing up your limited bandwidth. You only have so many cycles. There really aren't any spare ones right now. And you there are no fun. spare ones. But it sounds like Twitter made it easy. So that, that's a nice story. Uh, True story. Yep. Thank you, Twitter. Uh-huh. Um, indeed, I actually I actually had tried to pull a string. I texted um, one of my best friends from law school um, is actually pretty high up in the legal department at Twitter. Um, and so I said, hey, can I use you for something useful? And by the time he wrote back to my text, it had already been suspended. I was going to say, it's like, I, I thought for a second maybe it was a special deal, but no, it's just regular customer service. Who knew? Uh, <gasps> He's putting on headphones. I put on headphones because I worry about bleed. I, I assume you can hear and we're not getting any bleed from. No, no, we're good. No, it's all good? Yeah. Okay, well, switching to my headphones. So, all the, right, so you know, the, the principal reason why I wear it, so, so it's interesting. I mean, I, 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 you and I both have been doing this long enough where there was a time where the software was really vulnerable to having the audio come back in through the microphone and have a feedback loop. Um, that's not why I wear headphones with Zoom, because Zoom, I haven't had that problem with Zoom. I wear headphones so that any other noises, right, that come through my computer um, don't, get, don't get sort of right. projected onto the audio. Well, I, I like you for listening. Like, now I hear you better. Oh, by the way, let me pause oh, for a note. Uh, hi, Bobby. <laughs> Hello. Uh, there are probably listeners who are like, yeah, that's great. Please tell us what national security law you're going to talk about today. Bad very news, little. folks. It's going to be very little. You may have noticed there's a theme for this week, and that is we are chatting because we don't have anything particular to talk about. We'll, we'll, we'll we do. We'll pandemia a little bit. But I think the problem is that there's actually a ton to talk about, but we've talked about most of it already. And we're right. sort of, and, and we're sort of a, tired of talking about the same stuff over and over again. This will probably cause some eyebrows charge, but we claim not to, we try not to repeat and just talk about the same thing again unless there's something what? new to say huh? exactly exactly <laughs> we found out to what all right so we'll visit Oops. pandemia we'll have a few pandemic related things to talk about but not too much we're not going to redo debs or any of these other topics because we, um, we were ahead of that one we were we were and i stand by our analysis so do i um what else is there? There's a little, some personnel stuff at Gitmo we can note. There's some personnel stuff at Gitmo. Uh, there's a new convening authority for the military commissions, which, you know, at this point, it's just like, okay. All right. <laughs> um, um, we've got a, a, in the cybersecurity realm, we've got a computer ooh, front and peace act case at a cert, the Supreme a, Court. A cert grant. Who a they, cert grant. Who knew they still seat. did that sort of thing? I'm so pleased uh, to see some clarity on the way on so this one. So can, I, can, I, can, can I sort of tell a quick story? So, um, so, so you know, I, I help CNN with their Supreme Court coverage. And one of, that, one of the, the features of that, one of the, the aspects of that is whenever the Supreme Court hands down an order list and or opinions, there's a sort of an all hands conference call. And I'm on the call yesterday and we're going through the order list and I see the cert grant. And I'm like, oh, cool. They granted this super interesting CFAA case. And everyone else on the call is like, what are you talking about? I was like, <laughs> but they um, didn't care. No. <laughs> oh, come on. This, there's a way you can talk about this that really matters for everybody, including I, everyone on that call. Listen, I completely agree with that. But like in, if, if you're CNN trying to figure out, wait, do we need like to put out an urgent? Like, do we need to like drop a no. try on? Right. Like, no. Right. But, no. but so, so my reaction was miscalibrated to the, to the context of the, of the conversation. <laughs> You're like, sorry, nerd alert. Sorry. Sorry about that. Nerd so, outbreak. I mean, I'm usually better. Like usually I have a, I have a sort of stock phrase I use in these calls, which is, Ooh, this is super interesting to me and completely boring to you guys. You should turn that into a long acronym so you could uh, get that point across quicker. Listen, this is, I mean, this is how I found out. I mean, the, the two Supreme court decisions I've been involved in and the two cert grants that I, and the, well, and the three cert grants I've been, you know, involved in. Um, I was on the phone with CNN for all of them. That's fun. That's kind of fun. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Anyway, well, I'm not, 
So CFAA, right? We're going to talk about that. We're going to do yeah, a, a, quick, a quick Gitmo thing. Um, I don't really want to talk about the president's tweets about blowing Iranian ships out of the water. That just seems like, you know, stupid right. Trump blather. That sounds like bluster. Um, yeah. So maybe we could just focus on what, what's, what's bluster versus, world. What, what's bluster versus blather? What's the difference? Well, blather doesn't have any connotation of force, right? So you could be quietly blathering on in a meek kind of way. I mean, bluster sounds like you're overbearing. Uh-huh. Uh, they're, they're both. So, so are, are you blather and I'm bluster? <laughs> if if the shoe fits, man. <laughs> so um, we're gonna we'll also talk about this week's um, uh, gr- pretty gruesome episode of Westworld. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it was, was bloody. No, no spoilers here, but uh, yeah, spoiler but, alert, it was bloody. Yeah, um, I, I didn't. It's okay. I I think there's a there's a trend line with the sophistication of the plot. Yeah. Um, and, and although you haven't watched it, I do want to say a quick word encouraging people, even if they're not the biggest sports ball fans. Um, I've gotten a real kick out of parts one and two of The Last Dance, the, the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan documentary on CNN. And I want to say a, a little quick thing at the end about why I found it so enjoyable. Why as a Knicks fan, right, um, <laughs> who Michael Jordan just tormented, right, for yeah. most of my relevant Knicks fandom life, um, I actually find it super enjoyable. I'm going to totally watch that once I get the time. And uh, so that's on my list. And so is the Beastie Boys documentary, which I'm very excited about. Um, do, do, you have, sure. do, do you have your license to ill, Bobby? <laughs> uh, I have a little story I want to tell, but uh, we'll save that for later. Uh, actually, I think they're using that as like the tagline in the commercials. Like they have a story they want to tell. I mean, subtle. you know, well, wouldn't you? <laughs> All right. Uh, should we start with some Pandemia. Pandemia, it's still here. Wait, it's wait, it's it's still here. Bobby, it's 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 April twenty second. There's still a virus. There is. The, as near as I can tell, the virus is unaware of any uh, changes in the circumstance. Mm. Uh, but we've got a a growing uh, momentum towards reopening, which is a phrase that covers a lot, right? In some contexts, this is people, political leaders, who are absolutely leaning against suppression measures, leaning against shelter-in-place measures, leaning against, you know, actually, I don't see anybody arguing flat out against social distancing. You got to save that for the Alex Jones style, you know, uh, as Nick Weaver put it the other day on Stuart Baker's podcast, the death cult rallies. Um, but you do have a lot of, uh, a lot of interest. One, one right over there. Right, not, down, not far from here. Although, you know, I, I, it really bugs me that in some places that was covered as like, in Texas, this is what the Texans are doing. Give me a break. This is what a really small, small, small number of people, while the vast majority of us were being responsible at home. And most of those people were there for, you know, whatever the conspiracy crazy theory is that Alex Jones is putting out on InfoWars. Setting that aside, we clearly do have a number of political leaders who are looking for ways to get the economy uh, rebooted in various ways. And there's nothing, not only is there nothing wrong with that goal, but it's a very important goal. The question is, how do you, how do you do it in a way that won't turn out to be penny wise pound foolish or, or indeed life foolish. Um, And here, I think we have to note that there are some leaders who are talking the talk, but it remains to be seen what exactly policy wise they will change. And that's a way of them trying to navigate their particular political waters. And then you've got some who, who mean it and who are, who are issuing orders and are opening up businesses in ways that uh, at least some public health officials think is very foolish. Um, is there anything for us to some, say about some, this? some public health officials? Um, yes. 
So I want to say, I, I want to say two things that are not directly about this, but I think are related to this. So the first is, uh, I want to say a bit about the Attorney General's radio interview with Hugh Hewitt yesterday, um, which got a lot of headlines. So Attorney General Barr um, did a radio interview with Hugh Hewitt yesterday, where among other things, Bobby, he said that, you know, the Justice Department is looking very closely at states um, and is ready to take legal action if the Justice Department believes that these states are crossing the line. Um, and, I, you know, the there are two ways to read that statement. Um, one of which is sort of not especially, um, well, let me just, let me just uh, there are two ways to read that statement. Um, way number one um, is um, that he's saying in existing lawsuits where private parties are challenging these, you know, shelter in place orders um, on the ground that, um, you know, basically on the ground that um, they're interfering with like religious freedom, right? Those orders, um, are, are unconstitutional. The Justice Department's gonna show up and say, we are interested in this case, maybe right. we even agree with the plaintiffs. So statement of interest filings in the various individual rights cases, presumably not any of the abortion rights cases. Well, so this is, so this but, is my problem, right? As, as Roxy comes along to say hi. Oh, um, there's Roxy. Okay, if you're, not, if you're not watching this in our recorded Zoom version, you're only listening to it, you may have to tune in to this part in the conversation to see uh, Roxy the plug. <laughs> so, um, but Bobby, you, you just hit on my exasperation with even this more um, limited intervention by DOJ, which is, you know, those who are defending it are like, well, of course, you know, why are you, why are you criticizing the Justice Department for just trying to enforce and ensure that constitutional rights are enforced? It's like, well, because they're not actually trying to see that all, con I mean, where's the statement of interest in the Texas abortion cases, for example, right? Like, you know, there are plenty of constitutional rights that are being, um, uh, infringed upon, right, by these orders. So I, my sense of it is that the, the benign and indeed appropriate way for the attorney generals, if, if this is what he meant, it would be perfectly, uh, perfectly permissible within the bounds of ordinary behavior. If what he's saying is uh, there may be cases where we think a state or local government has gone too far from an uh, infringement of rights perspective with its otherwise legitimate public health policies, and we may do statements of interest where we think that's happening. Um, I, I take your point that they're almost certainly going to do that only where it goes with the grain of their preferred policies. Uh, but I also would say that I don't think that's any different from, not that we've had the same context arise elsewhere, but in general, when it comes to where the, where the Justice Department's going to intervene with statements of interest on individual rights, you know, I don't, I don't expect a Democratic administration to weigh in with an uh, individual rights interpretation-friendly Second Amendment supporting brief, and, and I don't expect a Republican administration to come in with an abortion rights uh, know, brief. I, I, I don't disagree. My point is just that for those who are defending his actions on the ground, that it is inevitably and indisputably the province of the Justice Department to defend all Americans' constitutional rights, all I want to say is, except they don't. And so right. it's, it's always selective um, in reflecting the policy. Um, but if that's all he means, and, and by the way, you know, it's not at all obvious they're actually going to do any of this. They might, right. they might not. And if right. they do, it might be just symbolic. It might not really signify much. Um, I think there were a lot of people who read it all a different way and thought right. maybe he was signifying something else. What was that alternative reading? And so this I goes think it's not what he meant. Well, I don't know. I mean, so this goes back to what this goes back to what we talked about last week on the podcast, that the, the federal government might itself initiate litigation against states to challenge at least various aspects of the shelter in place and stay home orders. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to sort of relitigate everything we discussed on the episode last week. I think that, first of all, 
it's not obvious to me there's any cause of action that would allow them to bring such a suit. But second, that even if there was, that the, the dormant commerce clause argument at least is a loser on the merits. And so, you know, I just, I, if all it is, Bobby, is that we're going to show up in a handful of cases and file statements of interest, then I don't know why you go through the motions of this big fancy radio interview and making sure that like you generate headlines out of it, right? Versus- oh, Doesn't that comment answer the implied question there? Isn't that exactly the point of it? But that's why even more like, you know, this actually, this isn't actually a thing, right? This is just, you know, empty symbolism. And that's just, you know, we, we have enough to worry about right now without empty symbolism. So, mm. yep. Uh, come back to that point. Let's, so for those who didn't listen carefully last week, they might not attract uh, that suggestion for what was actually happening in this alternative reading of Barr's statement. So the idea is that uh, last week we talked about how there, there are those who argue, some of them the president, uh, that the president in some sense, or maybe the federal government more generally, has some kind of ability at some point simply to intervene and somehow to turn off the shelter in place orders or the business shutdown orders. Uh, and and the, the only plausible, so obviously the president in the federal government doesn't have some sort of ability to commandeer the states. We've talked about that endlessly. That, I think that's very well established. And, and uh, so I don't want to waste time with that. The, the kernel of genuine federal interest is uh, the, reg the regular flow or the relatively unimpeded flow of interstate commerce. There is a dormant commerce clause concept. And so the question would be, first, I agree with you completely that right now on these facts, as we've both been saying, there's no way that the, the Pike analysis of the competing interest of the state within its, not just its uh, legitimate province, but its compelling duty to protect public health versus the federal government's interest in promoting interstate commerce, there's no doubt, I think, that the, the states win. Um, it could be different in the future under different facts. Um, but what about this question you noted a moment ago about whether there's a cause of action and what, whether, it, you know, is this a standing issue? Is this, is, is the dormant commerce clause itself not enforceable by the Justice Department? How is it normally enforced? Is it always just a private litigant yeah. that raises it as a, uh, as a way to explain why they otherwise don't intend to comply with or shouldn't be held to account for violating federal, I mean, sorry, state law? Yes. Now there are, I mean, there are, so I think there are both standing and cause of action questions, Bobby. I mean, I think, you know, the federal government usually has a pretty easy time showing that it has standing when yeah. anything involving federal law is at stake. Um, the cause of action piece is harder because especially lately, the Supreme Court has been so, um, how do I say, uh, skeptical, right, of implied causes of action, right, that they want Congress to have expressly authorized suits. Um, and there's one statute um, it used to be codified at 42 USC 14141, although it's been moved to somewhere else in the U.S. code, which really confuses me. Um, that lets DOJ sue to enforce some federal laws, right? And there are some other statutes that let us sue to enforce other federal laws. Um, you know, we might remember the U.S. versus Arizona case from a few years ago, where the um, the Obama administration sued Arizona um, to challenge some of Arizona's laws on the grounds that they were preempted by federal statutes. Um, but, you know, Bobby, my sort of, you know, admittedly non-comprehensive, but I think fairly well-read understanding of the case law is that in general, um, there's no cause of action to enforce the dormant commerce clause, right? Um, at, at least on the part of the federal government, right? That, and, the, and the cause of action for private parties, Bobby, comes from Section 1983. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't mean to get lost in this. I mean, I think they're actually- No, I think it's interesting. But it also, so, but there are two other things from Trump landed that I do think we should talk about because- okay. uh, one of them just came over the wires. 
Um, and so this is coming to both of us pretty new. Okay. Um, so the doctor who led the federal agency involved in developing a coronavirus vaccine says he was removed from his post after pressing for a rigorous vetting of a coronavirus treatment embraced by President Trump. Um, this is, his name is Dr. Rick Bright, um, and he was removed yesterday from his position as the director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority and HHS Deputy Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response by the administration and involuntarily transferred to a more limited and less impactful job at NIH. And he's claiming that this is retaliation for being a whistleblower. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. You, okay, so, category fit question. Let's yeah. assume it is exactly as described. Yep. Does that count as whistleblowing to be in your duty saying, hmm, the president is saying X, I think we should study that? It's it's clearly in opposition to what yep. the president's sort of narrative is. I'm not sure that counts as whistleblowing. Maybe retaliation of some other kind, perhaps, yeah. but I don't know. I don't know either, um, but I think we're about to find out. Um, and this also, Bobby, comes on the same day as there was, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to find this um, this quote from this morning. Um, the, what is it, the acting director of OPM. Um, did you see this one about the civil service? Um, uh, no. No, I did not. So we've talked before about how if you really believe all the way down that the president has to be able to control the entire executive branch, that that actually ought to raise problems for civil service. Oh, of course. Yeah. So in, in unpack for the audience how civil service is protected in ways that's totally different from what we talk about with officers of the United States. Right. So unlike, unlike executive officers and not all employees of the executive branch are officers, um, there are a whole bunch of civil service positions. Actually, I guess, Bobby, technically some of the civil service positions are offices, but not all of them, right. right? There are a whole bunch of jobs in the executive branch that have civil service protections where you actually have tenure, some degree of tenure and salary protection based upon your years of service. You can only be removed for especially egregious misconduct. You have rights arising, you know, to challenge your removal. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've always sort of not fully understood about the unitary executive view that the president has to be able to supervise everyone in the executive branch is why that doesn't extend past officers to civil servants, to the custodial staff in, you know, OMB, right? To every sort of little person who works for any part of the federal government in any capacity. And if that's true, it would suggest that the entire modern civil service regime is unconstitutional, which I always thought Bobby was an argument against right? The unitary executive that like, it may, that may actually, you know, I think a lot of propens of a, of a, all the, let's call it turtles all the way down or unitary all the way down model would say, that's just uh, it may be fortunate, maybe unfortunate descriptive truth about what the theory suggests. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure even Justice Scalia and Morrison would have gone that far, but anyway, so the, um, the acting director of the office of personnel management, um, in a story from uh, Dan Lippman uh, yesterday, late, uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, so OPM is apparently refusing to brief the Hill on the status of the agency and federal teleworking arrangements. And then buried in the story was that apparently part of what's um, it, in some dispute between the, the House and OPM is the OPM director's view that the 1883 Pendleton Act, right, which codifies uh, the merit-based selection for civil service federal employees. Enacted uh, after a lot of so this is, this shady is my, This is my stuff, point, yeah. right? So, so the, the whole point of the Pendleton, so anyway, the, I didn't finish the sentence, right? So his argument is that the Pendleton Act might be unconstitutional and that every single person who works for the executive branch should be a political appointee. And, you know, I tweeted 
when I saw this headline, I tweeted, those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it, right? Because um, just <laughs> to, to make a long story short, you know, it was, um, I mean, a president was assassinated, right? Because of frustration with, you know, anyway, um, patronage was a huge part of the burgeoning and growing executive branch in the Civil War and after the Civil War, and it was a huge controversy. And civil service reform was one of the things that James Garfield, when he ran for president, pushed aggressively as something he wanted to pursue. And he was actually, you know, the man who assassinated him, Charles Guiteau, who famously shouts, I am a stalwart and now Arthur is president. Um, part of what apparently motivated Guiteau was hostility to Garfield's civil service reforms. Um, and here we are. We've managed to talk about Grover Cleveland and... James A. Garfield and Chester A. Arthur in, Listen, in sequence. This gives me a chance to plug a book, um, which I've actually <laughs> plugged on the podcast before, but I want to plug it again because it's just such a good book about someone who really deserves a larger place in American history. Um, so the book is called Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. Um, hmm. And it's a book about the life and assassination of President Garfield and how Garfield really could have been this remarkably transcendent figure if he had been able to actually you know, complete his term in office. Um, and one of, one of the many things that, that I at least learned from this book is Guiteau did not kill Garfield. Garfield's doctors killed Garfield. Right, right. Uh, I forget what, I, I don't remember what the treatments were or what went on. They're like sticking anything? dirty instruments into the, you know, the, into the wound site. And, um, and there's now pretty convincing evidence that actually had they literally just left the bullet in his body, his body would have healed and he would have recovered. Amazing, amazing. Uh, this makes me want to read. What's the Gore Vidal book that that focuses on the uh, this sort of period? Eighteen seventy six. Yeah, yeah. His book, eighteen seventy six, where Garfield is playing some role. All that, all the books in his series, uh, his historical sequence are, whether you like Gore Vidal or not, he he has a real way with words. Those books are fun reading. So there you go. Double book recommendation. All right. Last pandemia pand pandemonium. Um, is uh, uh, President uh, Trump's uh, tweet about immigration. Because, um, you know, there's always a tweet. Um, so was it just last night that President Trump tweets, I'm going to suspend all immigration? Or is it maybe it was a day and a half yeah, ago? No, now? I think it was. <laughs> was it just last night? I think Yesterday it was. afternoon. I'm going to suspend yeah. all immigration. Feels like weeks. So um, I just want to say a couple quick things. I, I, I want to talk about the legal part of this, but I also want to talk about the practical part, right? The, the, so the first thing is, um, nothing says we're ready to reopen like a closed sign at the border, right? Like, you know, we're ready to reopen, except we can't have any immigration because that would, you know, bring more virus into the country. Well, of course, he didn't predicate it at all on, on the public health justification, right? So that's the second part, right? Which is that this isn't actually about public health at all. This is about economic protectionism. Um, right. No, he, he literally said this is to protect what, like great American jobs or something. Right. But apparently, so, you know, as is so often true with this moron, right, the tweet has nothing to do with what the actual policy is, right? That the actual policy is not a categorical suspension on immigration. Rather, it's going to be a constraint on green cards, um, right? And on the issuance of new green cards for 60 days and a few other things. And all I have to say is, like, I think it's debatable, Bobby, whether the president has that authority under 1182F, the same statute that was at issue, of course, in the first travel ban cases. I, 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 I suspect we're soon going to find out whether he right. has the authority. Um, but it's just like, you know, it's, it is so um, crass 
right? Because I don't actually like the everyone, you know, who actually, I think knows anything about this would say, no, we actually need both, you know, qualified medical personnel to come to this country to help us respond to the crisis. And we need folks to go do, you know, the farm jobs. And we need folks to actually go into the, you know, we need the folks who would be coming to take these jobs. Um, and so I just, it's just, you know, using the cover of the coronavirus crisis to continue this assault on immigration when the policy has nothing to do, right, with the virus itself and with, you know, improving our ability to respond to the virus. It's just, it's just crass. It's, there's no question it's ugly. And I agree that it's, that this was about advancing narratives more so than doing anything substantively. Um, to look at it just strictly from the legal perspective, yeah. the statute you point out, it's, it's 1182F, that's 8 U.S. Code, 1182F, suspension of entry or imposition of restrictions Keep by talking. president. I have to let Roxy yep. out. Okay, good. Um, here's the statute. It says, whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interest of the United States, he may by proclamation doesn't say tweet, but by proclamation, and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, as he may deem to be appropriate. Now, on its face, that seems to me to be a dangerous but nonetheless really blanket gift or delegation to the president to make this call when he makes a determination. And then the question arises, is there any limit on his ability to make that determination? There's a there's not bad today from Erwin Chemerinsky and Jennifer Chacon um, arguing that even if this could be read to potentially apply here, that it would be unconstitutional because it would be unreasonable. It's not bad, so they don't frame it in terms of dry doctrinal terms, but I took them to be recognizing that this would be sub subject to rational basis review rather than heightened review. And as, as the law students and lawyers will know, that means there's two questions, at least if we're really applying it as rational basis review. One, is there a legitimate government interest that's been invoked? And it can be not the one actually in the government's mind. It could be with rational basis review. It could be whatever the litigating position comes up with. And then is there a rational relationship between that legitimate interest and what was done here? So Trump has invoked, even if it, we think it's nativism or something else, or, or distract people from uh, you know, this or that. 46,000 dead people. Right. If it's, whatever it is, if, if there is an argument to be made, and he actually already did make it, that there is a um, promotion of employment at a time of, you know, an employment crisis, that's unquestionably a legitimate government interest. The question is, is this rationally related to it? And uh, the Chacon Chemerinsky op-ed does a good job of explaining why this is a very poor fit for that purpose. But as you know, uh, rational basis review isn't about really how good the fit is. It's about whether there is a connection, even if badly over or under inclusive. And so it's not obvious to me that this, this no doubt will be litigated, but I'm skeptical that a court in the end would uh, say that this is unconstitutional and or beyond the scope of the statute. I think this is yet another example of where our system, for better or perhaps in this case much worse, um, gives the president just loads of discretion to take actions just like this. So I'm, I'm reserving judgment until I actually see the policy because, you know, we've oh, been, there, there is that. <laughs> I, mean, we've, I mean, we've been snookered before, right, mm -hmm. where the president says one thing and then actually signs something and says something else. Right, because um, the process might iron out all these 
problems. Or, or he has no idea what the heck he's saying. Um, I mean, he are, right, we already know that what he said was false. We already know that the tweet, right, that I'm suspending immigration was wildly overstated. Um, it, it, you know, it could be false. It could be that he absolutely meant it. But then when he turned it over to be implemented by people who had no idea he was going to say that, they walk it back and he tolerates that. Fine. Or doesn't even know. But what I want to say is I, I, I want us to remember that um, the first two travel bans, right, both failed in the courts before the third one succeeded. And a big part of why the first two ones failed was because they didn't draw the necessary distinctions to carve out those folks with the most claim to constitutional protection. And mm -hmm. so I actually think that if there's a real objection to this policy, I, it's most likely, Bobby, to be not a sort of unreasonable substantive due process kind of claim, but rather a violation of the due process rights of those who already have substantial connections to the United States um, if the policy is not crafted sufficiently, with sufficient precision and sufficiently narrowly. But we have to see the thing before we can actually assess that. That's an interesting idea. So in the prior, in the travel ban, I believe initially weren't green card holders impacted. Now here, obviously the whole point is these are people that do not yet have green cards or is it, or is this possibly going to encompass people who have them and he's still not letting them in? I don't know. That's, I mean, this, yeah, is, this, you know, this is, this is what I'm saying. Like, you know, let's all sort of, you know, hit the pause button, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, I share your view that 1182F, especially after the Supreme court's decision in the travel, in the travel ban 3.0 um, gives the president a ton of authority, perhaps more authority than he ought to have. Um, I just, I don't want to give up the ghost that they're going to still find a way to write the policy in a way that actually causes the same kinds of headaches that ended up dooming at least the first two iterations of the original travel ban. Well, I think we can assume the policy will be written uh, by Stephen Miller primarily. And so it's easy to imagine that at a minimum, he'll want it to be as broad as possibly can be. And he may well want it to be so broad that it clearly invites a judicial intervention because doing that ensures that this will be a long lasting narrative uh, that this will be a plot line that extends for some months at least and puts the courts and it puts the administration in the position it may like to be in, which is to say, well, we tried to do X, but those, you know, those judges, they, they wouldn't let us do what we need to do. Those crazy liberal judges like John Roberts, they, they thwarted us again. Exactly. All right. Should we leave pandemia behind? Please. Bye. All right. Uh, what's this although, about? Although of course, in, we're, all, we're all stuck in pandemia, but that's okay. That's true. Boy, are we. Uh, what else is uh, going on at Gitmo? What's this about a new uh, convening authority? There's a new convening authority. Well, you know, isn't it just uh, another day at the office to have a turnover in personnel in the, uh, in the bleak house? I, I, I want to say that this is not normal, but at some point, don't we have to say, actually, this is kind of normal? This isn't quite as interesting or exciting or as easy to mock as the turnover of presiding judges in the 9-11 trial. No, I mean, so right. So the convening authority, I mean, just for folks who aren't familiar with the military justice system. So the convening authority wears a couple of different hats when it comes to courts martial and the military commissions. The convening authority is sort of the, the one who signs off on charges in the first place. The convening authority is the first line of review of a conviction. Um, you know, your friend and mine, Harvey Rishikoff, um, had an interesting, if brief, tenure as the convening authority for the military commissions. Um, and you know, one of the things that come up with uh, real ad Rear Admiral Reismeyer, who is the now outbound, or at least uh, a former convening authority, is that there had actually been significant recusal challenges to his role as convening authority, um, right? That he had already recused himself from two of the cases in the military commissions, and he was under challenge for his uh, 
potential bias in three others, Bobby. And um, what they've done now is they've named uh, Colonel Jeffrey Wood, um, who I gather does not suffer from some of the same bias concerns, we'll see, um, as the convening authority, which also, and this is way in the weeds, but I can't resist for Michelle Parody in case he's listening, um, bears upon uh, Michelle's still live argument that I'll belue Bobby, that the convening authority has to be an officer of the United States appointed oh. under the appointments clause. Um, <laughs> uh, because Colonel Wood is an, act, is an active duty military officer, uh, uh, that issue is at least going forward now, I think, taken care of. Wow. Okay. All right. And, and, and boy, was that weedsy. But Michelle, that was down the weeds. Michelle, if you're listening, I love you, man. There you go. There's your, there's your, um, was I don't it know. All below five, I think, in the DC circuit. We got to find some way, some better way. To, this this naming convention is, is at some is, point so mind This is your thing. This is your 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 pet project. Is like I want to come up with like you know Abulul colon the Article Three ruling, right? Yes, Abulul. exactly. Let's have like descriptive names that really tell us what's going on. I feel the same way about the numbering system for the classrooms in our building. You know, three point one two eight. What does that even mean? Why can't that be like the uh, the volcano room? And, you know, people can remember this stuff. Put a picture of a volcano on the wall. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, as a relatively new member of the Texas Law faculty, I am incredibly pleased that the rooms have numbers so that I can actually figure out where 3.127 is by reference to where 3.12. I mean, this is like the, the summer I spent in Japan. I mean, the way they number streets <laughs> in Japan, the numbers are not consecutive on buildings, right? It's like, this is the 11th building in from the corner um, is the translation of how you like, you know, it's just like, I mean, Listen, if you speak and read Japanese, great. But what if you don't? Then yeah, it's like fair, fair enough. Can we have it both ways? Um, all right, what else have we got? We've got a, a cert grant in a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act case. A cert grant. The Van Buren case. Uh, let me just... Uh, Bobby, Bobby with this week's SCOTUS update. Yeah, what a... Hey, CNN, put me on the, put me on the payroll. Uh, how about ESPN? That'd be better. Mm. Uh, I don't think ESPN's hiring a lot of people right now. <laughs> fair enough. Um, all right, so this is uh, from the original petition for cert. This whole thing is about the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We actually talked recently about a Judge Bates decision, uh, very similar. This is exploring the meaning of what does it mean under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to exceed authorized access to a protected computer and thereby obtain information from it. Everyone understands as a baseline or as a paradigm that this part of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act at least is meant to encompass people who through technical means, through hacking um, or otherwise, who don't have authority, shouldn't be on the system, find their way in, extract information. But what about situations where the person in other circumstances is supposed to be or is authorized to be in that system, on that computer, um, viewing information, extracting it, but there's terms from the owner operator of the system that, that define the scope of what that authority is from a principal agent kind of perspective or an invitee perspective. And the person violates those terms and does something they're not actually authorized to do. Uh, from sort of a plain text sort of perspective, that sounds like you've exceeded authorized access. And therefore, it seems to follow that the terms of access, indeed the terms of service or terms of use, should be consulted to define the scope of the criminal and civil liability under the act. But from a uh, more of a purposive perspective, it's, it's exceedingly unlikely that that's quite what Congress was trying to do here. They were just trying to describe, well, it was an anti-hacking statute. Surely maybe it was meant to be narrower than that. And isn't it creepy, scary, or otherwise problematic 
for uh, private entities through their uh, tweaking of the terms of use and service uh, to be able to move the needle on where criminal liability and civil liability lie. And if you imagine it as applied to some situation where someone clicks through the terms of use or never even sees them, it does seem like there's a risk of lack of foreseeability here. And then on the other hand, there'll be situations where it's really obvious to the person who's the defendant, they knew darn well they were abusing their access. In any event, the Supreme Court granted cert. Here's uh, from the petition. Uh, to answer this question has sweeping, uh, sweeping implications. Every day, millions of ordinary citizens across the country use computers for work and for personal matters. Accessing information on these computers is virtually always subject to conditions imposed by employers' policies websites, terms of service, and other third-party restrictions. If, as some circuits hold, the CFAA effectively incorporates all of those limitations, then any trivial breach of such a condition, from checking sports scores at work, looking at you, Steve Vladek, to inflating one's height on a dating website, look, no, I'm just kidding, uh, is a federal crime. Look at you, Bobby Chesney. <laughs> I'm 6'4". I just don't seem 6'4 anymore when I stand next to you. How tall are you, Steve? 6'8". Or, mm. or, or, or as I, I used to say, 520. Um, <laughs> uh, um, Was that centimeters? Uh, well, so, so um, um, when Karen and I were on our honeymoon in Italy, we walked past this, um, this group of teenage Italian girls um, who turned around and, and one of them shouted, Do a meter! Do a meter! <laughs> so 200 centimeters then. 203 to be precise. Uh, that's right. You know, actually, in fairness, uh, I don't think I'm 6'4 anymore. I, I know I was 6'4 when I was younger. I think I've lost like a quarter of an inch. Steve, I'm shrinking. Help me. I can't. Uh, yeah. But I will say, I mean, so I, I think, I mean, this, this goes in the books as one of those cert grants. Oh my gosh, we have a friend. We have a visitor. We got a visitor. Let's see her. We have two visitors. We have Sydney. Hey, girls. And Maddie. All say right. hello I, to the podcast. Can you say girls, hi? Girls, do you see Groot? Do you see Groot? Uh, oh, you see that little animal <laughs> behind Bobby? Yeah. Um, he's not really there. He's in the background. Bobby has a special background, right? Maddie knows all about virtual backgrounds on Zoom. Oh, Bobby. that's all. Should I, Maddie, should I change? Maddie, can we get a background? Can we get a background? Oh, get a background. Um, we don't have that many interesting backgrounds. Let me, let me just finish the thought, Bobby, which is that I think yep. this is one of those cases where, you know, I, I think a having a... Okay, I'm going to pick one. We're having some kind of clear national rule is going to be so much more important than what the rule is. Oh, Bobby has a yep. whole bunch of stormtroopers behind them. Those um, are my students. Um, all right. We, <laughs> how about the beach? Oh, or, ooh, let's see this one. Ooh, the bridge. Now we're, now we're on the bridge of the Battlestar Galactica, Maddie. Wow, you're in space. You're in space. Um, all right. I, for those of you who are listening, I'm sorry that you can't see, but I, I have I have two pretty cute girls on my on my lap right now. Yeah, this so. this really does demand viewing, not um, listening, but it's pretty awesome. All right, are we done with marriage? Should we turn to frivolity? <laughs> yeah, let's do. All right, so that's it. I, I want to say I want to say a quick quick word about um uh, the last the last dance, um which is just to say I actually think it's the thing I wasn't expecting about this you know ESPN ten part documentary on the ninety seven ninety eight bulls. Is Bobby, I wasn't expecting how enthralled I would be just by the sight of Michael Jordan sitting in a chair in his house with a cigar and a glass of scotch um, <laughs> and just, you know, raps, you know <laughs> rhapsodizing or, or you know, uh, uh, waxing philosophic about his career and his life. Climb the tree. Uh, <laughs> Matt, Matt, Maddie wants to climb the fake tree behind I can't him. figure out whether it's on my left or my right. Which is it? I think it's your left. 
Hold on. It's all mirror image for me. That's the problem. Oh, there it is. Yeah. All right, so right there, we'll get a coconut. Anyway, I just want to say, um, Michael Jordan has the the best part of the documentary. Me, Bobby, has been the 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 current Bobby, and retrospective interviews with Michael Jordan. I love boring. You what? <laughs> you love boring. You're the best. Um, you know, Michael Jordan's the goat. He's greatest of all time, and it's there's something very satisfying about seeing him getting his repose in a yep. comfy chair with a yep. nice glass of whiskey. Yep. I will definitely watch that. Um, oh, who's that? Maddie has brought Ducky into the into the proceedings. Hello, Ducky. Whack whack. Um, all right, Sydney's but let's, making a call. But before, oh, Sydney, what did uh go great? Sydney, actually, <laughs> I, I left Sydney alone with my computer for a few minutes this morning. When I came back, I realized I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe Sydney's the one who cloned my Twitter account. Um, <laughs> so, um, ooh, right, so this, this podcast does not yet have a cloned Twitter account. Um, <laughs> we invite trouble. So Westworld. So if you are if you are uh, trying to stay up to date, everybody, and you haven't seen this week's episode, uh, now is the time to say um, goodbye. Um, and otherwise, Bobby, episode six. What did you think? Well, there were a few things I liked, but I gotta say, this one it was. Let's take it plot line by plot line. So let's let's do Charlotte Hale Uh-oh. first. Maddie, Cindy, what did you just do? Are we still recording? Uh, I hope so. Come by. <laughs> Um, it, sounds, it says it's recording on my end. Okay. She, just, all right, she, so, she minimized all the screens, so I can't actually see it. Oh, there we go. We're back. All right. Sydney, you can are I, in this screen. Can screen. I do this red light? Can you do the red light? Yeah, just don't point it at me or Sydney. She, Maddie has now found the laser pointer on my slide. Oh, oh my gosh. Wait, y'all don't have a cat, do you? Because that can be a lot of fun. I know. I, we don't. We have a dog, but it doesn't work with him. That's um, awesome. All right. So, so Bobby, go ahead with episode six. So, Charlotte Hale has... Um, I, one thing I really like, so they're obviously developing this idea that she, she's not just Dolores. All right, Maddie, sweetheart, why, why don't you take that into your room and show and, and, and go play with it in your room? Okay. See, the best part about this is there's really no way for you to plausibly say, like, daddy's working and this is very important because we're, we're talking about Westworld. She doesn't know. Oh, fair, but one day she'll she'll be older. She'll maybe watch I'm, this. Bobby, maybe I'm a maybe I'm a professor of the fine arts, and we're actually you know our job is uh is is you know reviewing television. We certainly act like it's our job. Um, that's why we have an essential function. Um, so Charlotte Hale is being set up as not Dolores copy, but a, a hybrid of the real Charlotte Hale combined with Dolores, and maybe actually uh, better than either of them. Right, morally speaking, they kind of at least gesture towards this idea that she's gonna actually she's forming this attachment to her husband and child that, that the real charlotte hale never had well and, and and that attachment is what ends up outing her to Ciroc, right i mean I, that's you know it's like you were you were too human which is how i knew that you weren't human yeah and that and that part was a little bit of like oh give me a break that that was a giveaway They're, like yeah, it was all fine right till that moment and then you knew right um it was like in uh, the muppet movie where the one the more bobby. recent one where just where, bobby uh, kermit hello when Kermit's in the gulag and they yeah. think he's Constantine and then he says, well, thank you. And they're like, you know, the guy from flight of the Concords is like, Constantine never says, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. There's a connection for you. So <laughs> I was fine. And then of course there's the big blow up at the end and they leave this sort of, you know, extremely scarred and dramatic looking, uh, somehow quite capable of surviving a, an IED. Um, I don't know. About, I don't know about that. But anyways, she's going to be out on the revenge trail. And I guess the question is, is she now going to go full on even more Dolores than Dolores against Ciroc? 
um, because they just killed the thing she loved. I guess that's what they're setting up. I would have been more interested to see the Charlotte Hale Dolores hybrid as this sort of uh, in-between character that, that cares about both worlds. Yep. Too bad. I think that's an opportunity lost. Um, okay, so here's, but here's my big question, okay? Um, did Charlotte slash Dolores, did Charlores, is Charlores the one who called Bernard and sent him and Stubbs to go get the man in black? Kind of seems like it, right? Because she's clearly been up to stuff. Now, she, we know she sent data out at the end there and she kills a guy to be able to finish the transmission by the way too bad she didn't just work on a regular small screen and that guy couldn't see what she was doing she had to throw it up on the wall monitor that was right, dumb. right we have we have the technology to like do this fancy data transfer in like five seconds but we don't have the technology to just do it from a private terminal exactly and she's gonna take the chance of somebody walking by um do you think uh when Sorok says like no we know that that was in some way or fashion an intercepted transmission that the information didn't get out? Or are we supposed to think that, no, it got out. We just, we know you I, did you know, it. But. It's on her phone. I don't know that, I don't know that we know that she sent it to anyone. Um, oh, I see. She, she wasn't transmitting externally. She was just downloading. Right. Hmm, interesting. All right, so the Charlotte Hill storyline, yeah, I, I, I hope they don't just have this all be like a creation of her revenge motives so that the battle scarred, you know, burnt uh, host body can go on a, like some but bobby keep in mind that charloris walked away from delos with the other charlotte pearl with the other dolores pearl right remember she takes she takes right, the, she, she takes the damaged connell you know she takes the pearl well no but she crushes it no no she crushed um um uh, hector. Oh, no she crushed hector right so I, there's a really that was great by the way that was good i think the episode is deliberately unclear about who called um bernard Right and about whether and because why would Charloris send Bernard? Oh, you know it has to be her because they have her say early on something I, about we're tracking his location. Now we know where. I know, but what's weird? So, so they they clearly want you to think that she's the one who called Bernard. But why would she call Bernard to tell him that she figured out where someone she had committed is being held? And now she wants him to rescue him. Like that's right. that's the piece that makes no sense to me here. It makes sense if what we think is happening is that she's evolved because she kept the emotions and she's got this hybrid nature now. And so, so she's, she's now rebelling against Dolores. She's rebelling against Dolores. She's also unfriendly to Sirach. And so she'll emerge from this as the burnt to a crisp, but still moving revenge machine out for both their so now heads. we've got so now we've got three vectors. We've got the right. Dolores vector, the Charlores vector, and the Maeve vector. Exactly. So now Maeve's story. I guess I I super didn't like the whole like uh, back to the, sort back, of, back to War World. She goes back to War World and she she suddenly has all her powers back and she uses them to set up a little, you know, stretch yourself and kill a bunch of Nazis. I'm like, hey, kill a bunch of Nazis. Okay, but like it's so it didn't fit the character. I felt. It didn't, feel, it didn't fit the arc. Yep. It just seemed like it was done as sort of a sizzly thing for, yep. for the series. Yep. And also, um, it just seemed like a way, like, you know, why, if, if Ciroc's whole point is that Ciroc want, Ciroc brought her to Delos, right? That was the whole point, right? Why make her go through the, you know, the machinations of going through the simulation again when the whole point is he wants her, ta he, he, wants her to, he wants her to be having that conversation with, with Dolores that she has, right, for much of the episode. Why waste, you know, however much time of, uh, it, it takes for her to fight through the simulation? Right. Why can't they point? drop her right into the relevant place? Yeah. Yeah. Plot, yeah. I guess. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that was all done for plot. I think they, I think they wanted to revisit war world again and have a scene where they show what an ass kicker she is by, by killing a circle's worth of these soldiers. Um, and it just seemed a little bit done for uh, sort of sizzle qualities that I think are perfectly to be expected in a run of the mill sci-fi type series. or West, action that, series. Has, that hasn't been Westworld. Exactly. So all that's right. my point at the outset about the arc is declining. Last character, um, man in black. Yeah. So, um, that was the most fun Westworldy, authentic-y thing, the mind games and all the rest. And I loved having all the different variants, including the kid, all in the session. Um, I thought that was cool to get the glimpses of how he was actually pretty flawed from the beginning. And that he tried, you know, he's built up a narrative in his own mind that he was an abused kid, but actually the drinking was to manage what a horrible his father's drinking. What's that? Maddie wants to know why I, I, I went back to my original background. I know. So boring, Dad, right? Look how messy it is. I know. So they're making a messy <laughs> drawing in my federal courts case book. So I thought it was really clever to, to kind of take the expected trip of like, oh, yeah, okay. So we see the origin of him. He was abused. And have it be revealed like, no, no, he was really, he was really violent and scary as a kid. And it drove his own father to drink. At least that's what it seemed to be suggesting. Yeah. That was all very interesting. But what do you think the point of all this is? So, so that Bernard and Stubbs get him and he's learned something about himself. What is this going to empower him to do? Why is it important to have him at all? I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I mean, we're going to find out. All, I think, but I think the point is just that like his quest to figure out like where things went wrong, right. Is now over. Right. That like, yeah. you know, the game, the game he was playing with Ford, he seems to have finally, he got to the center of his own maze. He got in the center of his own maze was to confront the reality is he's not, he's not the victim and hero in his story fighting against the odds. He's, he was kind of bad from the outset. Um, I will note, cause I noted every time we review it, that these, uh, these, these writers don't miss the chance to say as much denigrating things about religion as they possibly can. So they have him give a speech. Um, I just think it's funny that that seems to be a trope that they want to come back to every single episode, but whatever. Um, I feel like we've left out something from the episode. Oh, just on the sheer action front, let's go back to Maeve. I oh, know, I'm sorry, to Charlotte Hale's escape. We and the riot, the riot control robot. We finally get the action from the riot control robot, plus stormtrooper-esque levels of inaccuracy by a huge number of what have to presumably be the world's best security guards with automatic weapons, it's none the, of whom it's the, can hit it's the, the, it's the It's the James Bond school of marksmanship, right? That, you know, the, the, the most highly paid mercenaries in the world are apparently terrible marksmen. And then everyone else is... Yeah, it was really kind of maddening because you didn't I mean, have... Wait, but Bobby, to be fair, I mean, the, the host should be a great marksman because that's computer-aided, right? Her, her part is fine. For her to be a marksman, it's great. For those for the regular humans to all be that ridiculously bad was Star right. Wars level inaccuracy. With, with, with automated weapons. And, the, and the, the way they filmed it and they orchestrated the scenes really made it worse than it had to be. They could have had her shoot them quicker, surprise people more so that they weren't running down the hall from 30 feet back on full automatic spray and getting, you know, only twice nicking her, right? Um, so that was disappointing. But the but this riot control robot busting through the wall was pretty great. That was pretty great. That will bust up your day really right quick. I, I also object to the idea that any of those guards would have stood their ground in front of that thing. Well, there's also that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that does have a sort of Terminator feel to it. Like, oh, the machines are taking over. So what do you think, uh, we have just a couple of episodes left. Two. What, is your, what do you think is going to happen? 
so obviously there's some sort of climactic confrontation coming right between the three camps um and i just i'm i don't know what it's going to look like and i don't know what role the man in black is going to play but you know i i haven't loved the last two episodes bobby but i like what it's set up like i like i right. like what i i like what appears to now be sort of all you know the pieces are the chessboard is such that the pieces are in the right places for some really sort of cataclysmic confrontation to decide the future of these two very different races and right, not races so get, these, these two different species so there's a there's an end game that's been arranged we'll get a little backstory on cal that seems to be the next we'll, episode then we'll know we'll know all i guess if i had to predict i I'd say that neither Sirach nor Dolores will get their vision and that somehow Charloris slash uh, Bernard and, uh, you know, maybe Maeve get some kind of redemption arc. Maybe redemption. humanity even, and you maybe even it. the host. You heard it here first. Redemption. Um, I, I will say last time, just as a straight thought, um, picking up on last week's conversation, you know, once again, we're seeing the sort of um, overly dramatized consequences of the insight data dump, right? The the psychology oh, yeah. commit suicide, right? I mean, the... I right, right. Um, I thought that was all just to set up so that uh, the man in black could bust out of uh, well, there's his that. right because yeah, they, but... they forget about him. Right. Well, well, I thought when she walked out of the room and didn't close the door, I was like, oh, he's going to follow her out and escape. Like, That's what I thought know. too. But no, no he have, went back they, to his. They have to draw it out much more, much more, much more sophisticatedly. Yep. Um, all right. Well, All I'm looking right. forward to episode six. Um, so we are going to record late next week, right? Because we're going to do the yeah. special Austin Bar Association event on Friday. Exactly. So barring an emergency, which or barring a, a, a super, a super duper, a, a double secret emergency. Um, right. Yeah, we could, I can imagine that if there's interesting stuff that happens, we might double dip so that we can have more time to talk Westworld episode seven. If, 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 se up, if, if seven's like really good. If it's really good, we may have to record early and then we'll do We'll go again with the bar association yeah. on Friday. So, so, you know, we might not be back to you guys until next Friday. We might drop an episode sooner if, you know, circumstances warrant, but either way, we hope you guys are all still safe and sound out there and, you know, doing your best to, to weather the storm. Uh, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore. <laughs> um, we're at NSL Podcast, and this is Sydney Jane, who's going to say bye-bye. Can you say bye-bye? Oh, she's waving. Oh, that's cute. Bye-bye. Uh, Stay safe out there, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>